there is a change in values, shift in emphasis from individual rights to collective rights, and overemphasis, in my view, on safetyism and the demands by people on their governments to keep them safe, to make it impossible for others to hurt your feelings. Uh, feeling hurt is little violence, microaggression, the whole thing. Today, sit down with Ramesh Thacker, former United Nations Assistant Secretary General and Professor Emeritus of Public Policy at the Australian National University. Now, he's a Brownstone Institute senior scholar. It was sacrilege to question it. It was heresy to question it. And the new priesthood enforcing this heresy was the public health authorities. How do we rebuild what was broken? This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Ramesh Thakur, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start with this. Of course, you wrote the book, Our, Our Enemy, the Government, mm -hmm. <laughs> provocatively titled. One of the things that you said, which really caught my attention, is you felt like 10%, if 10%, I don't know if it was doctors or medical professionals, rejected what seemed to be obviously wrong directives, right, coming from on high, that the whole kind of structure of compliance would have collapsed. And I'm, I don't know if I can accept that easily, but I want you to explain to me why you believe that, right? Okay, sure. Uh, if we step back in time, one of the features of current society is the rise of the professional associations and the regulatory colleges that regulate the practicing people in their professions, accountants, lawyers, doctors. And during the COVID era, these regulatory bodies were very useful for the state and were instrumentalized to ensure compliance. And so any doctor who questioned publicly what was being uh, demanded by the authorities, the public health authorities, and then through the colleges, uh, could be disciplined. Now, in any profession, as a rough and ready calculation, I think a 10% threshold of dissent is very critical because once you get to that level, they cannot function by cancelling a full 10% and they cannot mm. get away by saying this is a very tiny minority view. Think of the famous or infamous 97% consensus settled science on climate emergency. If you don't get people speaking up, that illusion can be sustained almost indefinitely. But if 10% of the scientists start saying, wait a minute, we don't actually agree with that, we have these questions, then the public attention shifts to, well, what is it they're saying? They're fully credentialed as well. So if the doctors and specialists had been able to speak out, and that many of them did, they couldn't cancel them all, and they couldn't get away by insisting that this, only the cranks and the nutters and the tinfoil hatters were the dissidents. So that's where I picked that up. Now, it, it, it may be not 10%, but 15%, we won't know. But 10% is a pretty significant number. The reason they got away with that, I think, is the censorship and shadow banning and suppression. That's where the censorship industrial complex comes in. Because the doctors who were dissenting didn't know how many others were speaking out. Mm -hmm. And that made it much, it required much more courage than for any individual doctor to put his or her head above the parapet. That's the argument. 
because you're speaking right into one of my favorite topics, which is how powerful the vision of perceived consensus, the perception of perceived consensus, that the correct view or the right view, or the one that most people really believe is something, and how this censorship or disinformation, another name for it is the disinformation industrial complex, is really able, that is its true powers, it's able to shape that. Mm -hmm. both through this one side, the censorship, and through the other side, the propaganda. And right. the reason for that is that throughout this period, they were promulgating and relying on the authority of following the science. And therefore, they needed that illusion of more or less clear consensus amongst the scientists. But in fact, if in fact, scientists and some of the leading credential scientists were dissenting, then that makes it more different. Which is why, going back to the great Barrington Declaration, the description of the three people, I mean, these are senior, well-established epidemiologists from Harvard, Stanford, and Oxford, world-leading figures. And to describe them as fringe epidemiologists was important in order to destroy their credential. Mm. And to say, you know, these are not as they're on the fringe, they don't count, really. We've got all, everyone else agreeing with it and silence from everyone else was projected as consent in the profession. But they never actually surveyed that. So that goes back to the same phenomenon. And indeed, you know, this I was actually going to ask you because I felt the Great Barrington Declaration was one of these things. Where I don't know if it hit the 10% threshold, but it was a significant, a significant group of people that signed on and said no. But because of this machine, that those voices were not heard. Yes and no. I think they were not allowed to be heard, and the shadow banning was very effective, including with uh, Jay Bhattacharya himself. But it's interesting how many people kept referencing that and saying, but you've got, what was it, 50, 60,000 health professionals and doctors who have signed on to that. They can't all be wrong, surely, uh, as well as the general citizens. I mean, I was an early signatory, but obviously I wasn't in the medical health professional category. So. They did succeed in limiting their spread and disseminating the influence, but I think the number of signatories was actually important for validating a lot of criticism and dissent. Mm. So it, it wasn't in vain. It was it, oh, right, absolutely right, not, right. No, I, I agree with that as I, well. I, yeah. I, would, I would like to do a Google search month by month from when it came out <coughs> and see just how many times it was actually referenced. Uh, and of course, you can only do that when they stop shadow banning and stop suppressing the search engine. Right. Well, you know, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about your background, because you said you are not a medical professional, and indeed that's true. But you do have a very, uh, very interesting past and a very interesting vantage point on all of this. Mm -hmm. So tell me about that. You know, and of course, you were a very senior figure at the United Nations. I'll, I'll give people a hint. But how did you get there? Yeah. Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, I was involved in this topic tangentially through a series of different uh, contexts, in a series of different contexts. First of all, as a shorthand, my major professional background is as a specialist on global governance. So I co-wrote a book that is a major, the major book, I think, on global governance uh, with uh, Tom Weiss from the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. 
the global governance and unfinished journey, which was on the role of the United Nations at the hub or center of global governance. And one of our chapters was actually on health and pandemics, including substantial section on the WHO. So that was one. At the United Nations University, where I was the senior vice director, we operated on a globally dispersed faculty system. So think of a regular university, but its faculties are located in different countries around the world, in different continents. And we established and created some new ones. One of those was an institute on global health, which we located in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. And so as part of that effort, again, we looked into this topic and where it is that the UN University could come in, in terms of connecting the need in terms of capacity building in many developing countries with the expertise that is available mostly in the advanced industrial economies uh, and which subjects we look at. So again, that's the second aspect through which I was interested. The third one was when I was still in the UN system and more intensely after I left, I was involved in the effort led by a small group of people in Canada under the sponsorship and encouragement of former Prime Minister Paul Martin, who with Larry Semmers, the Treasury Secretary here in the States, had been responsible for creating the Finance Minister's G20 mm -hmm. after the financial crisis in 1997. And then he became Prime Minister. Uh, his experience indicated that the intimacy and personal relationship between the Finance Ministers was very important in getting agreement amongst them on what needed to be done. And once they were agreed and had a vision and a strategy, they could then use their authority and office as minister to try and overcome bureaucratic and institutional resistance within their individual systems. So he said, what if we could do this at the leaders level? Would it be possible to get together the leaders of some of the most systemically important countries, put them together for a day or two in an intimate setting, just a small number, and then the number we were looking at was 14 or 15. And then get the agreement amongst them as the most effective, possibly the most effective way to break the deadlocks and impasse within their own systems and get global agreements. And which are the major topics then that we need to look at or these leaders would need to look at? And as part of that, which is a crisis in which area that might trigger the need for such an elevation from finance ministers to uh, heads of government and heads of state. And as the topics we looked at were, for example, uh, nuclear weapons use, nuclear weapon uh, weapons of mass destruction terrorism, WMD terrorism, uh, financial crisis, which is the one that actually triggered it in, uh, was it 2008 or nine, whenever it was. Yeah. Uh, and pandemics was another one. Mm -hmm. So we actually looked at pandemics as a potential trigger to elevating that grouping to that. So from all these areas, I was familiar on, with respect to pandemics as a global governance issue, but through that I was, became familiar with the national pandemic preparedness plans because one of the things we kept saying in the UN system and, and kept saying it even after I had left was that it's a matter of when rather than whether. We will have a pandemic sooner or later and when it strikes, we will not be able to respond to it unless we have prepared in advance 
how to identify, how to coordinate, and what it is that we need to do. And that was summarized quite succinctly in September 2019. So it's, it's only shortly before we, are we have a pandemic declared by the WHO in a report. And one of the striking conclusions in that was what they called NPIs, non-pharmaceutical interventions, which things like uh, lockdowns, uh, travel restrictions, social distancing, all these things, uh, closing businesses and making people stay at home. NPIs are not recommended. And, 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 and it was very clear that they don't work, they cause harms, they are disruptive to society and to the economy. Uh, people may resent it and resist it, uh, and, and if the resistance is fairly widespread, the authority of the government might collapse. Uh, and at best, if you need to enhance your hospital capacity or your ICU capacity, you may consider these measures for a very short limited term like one week or two weeks. To but stop the, long, the spread. To stop the spread, <laughs> ramp up your capacity. Right. But the longer you leave it, the more damage you cause through that process <clears throat> and the more you risk a return of the problem uh, that later on. So don't do it. So when the pandemic was declared in early 2020 and they went for these measures, I was puzzled. Uh, so I wanted to look at why they had done it. Was there a new science? Well, science doesn't advance quite like that. It, it takes time to develop uh, and, and get consensus on that. Was there significant new data that contradicted the earlier advice? Well, we had some data that was important in the way it was used by the medical authorities, uh, and but that had come from Wuhan in China. And with all due respect, I think we needed to cross-check some of that data uh, because it was not the most reliable source from where it was coming. To say it nicely. Yeah. To say it nicely. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, the UN training. Yeah. Uh, so <clears throat> I didn't accept that we should have reacted in quite that panic mode with such drastic measures without first seeing was it justified. Now, I had retired from the university position by then. I had not accepted any other position. <clears throat> and as part of the retirement, I had also refused to accept new assignments, whether it's writing or reviewing manuscripts or whatever. So I had the time, and it also meant I had the freedom. They could not cancel me. They could not sack me because I was already retired. And the third element that was important was because of my background, I had some platforms for disseminating my views and some research skills for matching data and theory to policy. <clears throat> and so I used my access to some publications to start asking questions and essentially saying, why are we doing this? Have we factored in the long-term harm that we can predict is going to be caused by these measures? Uh, is this crisis really as bad as they're claiming? Where is the evidence for that? Uh, and in particular, people forget that we actually had as close to an actual experiment as you could get with the Diamond Princess cruise ship. Because when the pandemic broke out and it, it arrives from Hong Kong in Yokohama port in Japan, you have this ideal conditions for the spread of an infectious disease. A confined quarters, essentially elderly clientele, existing in close quarters, 
one person gets infected, before you know that you have a crisis, they have interacted with how many others? And yet at the end of that, a small proportion were infected and an even smaller proportion died from it. And then later on, you also have the American warship, the Eisenhower, and the French warship, the Charles de Gaulle. Now you have the opposite end of the spectrum. You have, by definition, healthy, fit, active duty, young soldiers. And you can see that the disease is not all that serious for them. So the claims of a once in a century emergency, and this is the worst thing we've had since the Spanish flu and is comparable to Spanish flu. Well, again, not many people may realize that about one third of the total fatalities from the Spanish flu were amongst Indians. So this is something that I was familiar with from that. And it just didn't make sense. And the third element that was very striking about COVID from the very start was the exceptionally steep age gradient. <clears throat> you look at the Western countries, typically the mortality with COVID is either at or even above the average life expectancy. And so you look at that and you say, and you go back to the Great Barrington Declaration, they made that point that you're looking at a thousandfold difference between the elderly and the young. And then later on, we get confirmation that it's not just the age, but the existence of comorbidities. If you have underlying serious health conditions, then you're more vulnerable. If you're a healthy person, even at age 70, with not a single underlying health condition, you're unlikely, very unlikely to die even if infected. So the gravity did not measure up. Why then these extreme measures? Mm. And why not factor in the consequences? And have you done your quality assessment, the quality adjusted life years and, and the harms, cost-benefit cost analysis? Well, and you know, the intervention was, of course, you know, blowing up the world economy. It was. Right. So, so it's a significant intervention, I guess, that's what, that's for, for, for what you're describing. In, inclu um, including the interruptions to the childhood immunization programs around the world. People just overlooked the damage this was going to cause in the developing world, which is the majority of the world community. And that was my major interest. Mm -hmm. So I found that very shocking, the extent to which we just ignored the damage we were going to cause that could be predicted and was predicted by key parts of the UN system, like UNICEF, like the World Food Program, like the Food and Agriculture Organization, uh, and even the IMF and the World Bank were saying, this is going to cause in, immense damage. Uh, and, and the education losses that will, you know, we have a 375 mil, million pandemic generation of children who've had schoolings uh, interrupted for uh, two or three years. And that's just in India. This is not a global figure. Mm -hmm. So it, the, the consequences were there and they were predicted and, and by key parts of the UN system. So it wasn't just fringe bodies saying it, it, it was authoritative. You know, uh, you have some absolutely, I think, brilliant thoughts on why this happened, why the compliance, you know, why, why there wasn't there this 10% really, right, in, in different fields, or um, how did this all unfold? And so, so what, what, let's jump into that. Sure. Okay. Well, <laughs> um, in June or so of 2020, one of the two main national Argentinian papers 
they did a long interview with me, which was a Sunday feature and it was a full page feature. So it was a 3,000 word article they wrote. And one of the questions I was asked was, what has surprised you most with the pandemic so far? And I remember my answer was, I've been surprised at how easily the advanced Western democracies with universal literacy ended up complying with the most serious assault on civil liberties and political freedoms and human rights uh, in our history. Why is it that people complied so easily? One thing we covered earlier was the censorship and the unawareness of the extent which the professionals were actually uh, dissenting but were not allowed to say it and could not share their dissent with one, each other. But the other element I think is we have seen two parallel developments. One is the transformation of the quintessential liberal democratic state into the national security state, then the administrative state, then the surveillance state, and now the biosecurity state. At each of these developments, you have an expansion of state power and the spread of the state tentacles into increasingly intimate areas of public life and individual life. And they are able to subvert the will of the legislature as the body that makes laws by delegating more and more powers to the experts and to the bureaucrats. And the, expert, the expert class has, in a sense, combined that old American definition of tyranny and started exercising legislative, executive, and even judicial or semi-judicial. And think of some of the recent court cases in the United States where they have taken on, you know, the, the court has started to strike back at overreach and abuse by parts of the bureaucracy. So there's that element. But equally, there is a change in values, a sh shift in emphasis from individual rights to collective rights, an overemphasis, in my view, on safetyism uh, and, and the, the demands by people on their governments to keep them safe, to make it impossible for others to hurt your feelings. Uh, feeling hurt is literal violence, uh, microaggression, the whole thing. And then you end up with a situation where there are demands that you can change your sex or gender by simply declaring that you feel like a woman and therefore you are a woman and you're allowed, you, you're not just allowed, but you demand that everyone else calls you by your new name and refers to you by the new pronoun uh, and if they're misgendering you, laws will be uh, passed and enforced uh, and you can be punished either financially or even be jailed. So this whole transformation of the very basis of society, the core values and shared ideological frameworks that constitute a community, and then the use of state power to enforce that. And this has been done, I think, by a minority, but an active minority that worked through the classroom at school and universities to change the nature of education from education to indoctrination, reduce thought diversity, 
enforce intellectual conformity and progressively punish and silence and delegitimize dissenting voices. And so the very nature of universities has been subverted, not just changed, because this is where critical inquiry should flourish and questions should be asked and you can have a healthy, vigorous debate, uh, including among students and between students and professors, and instead we go the other way. And that creates an environment that is much more permissive to changing reality by law, whether it accords with the objective reality or not, to enforcing through law the new normal with regard to beliefs and value systems and social practices, elevating the collective over the individual, which is the fundamental basis for breaching human rights, which in the Western tradition have been individual-centric, and saying, we will put you and all of you under house arrest, even though you have committed no crime and you are healthy, because we fear that what is happening in Wuhan has the potential to kill us all. And to keep me safe, I will demand that you must be vaccinated. Well, think it through. If the vaccines work, it's protecting me. I'm vaccinated. It doesn't matter whether you are or not. But no, 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 that idea itself I find offensive. Uh, and you're being very selfish. And you have no right to bodily integrity to protect me and the rest of us. You must be vaccinated. So it was, I think, a long gestation and spread through the institutions. And now you have in the public sector, in Congress and parliamentary systems, in the executive, in the corporate sector, in the sporting bodies, in the cultural elite, the professional and managerial class is dominated by people with very similar views. And so the professional perspectives, which used to be different, and journalists would be critical of governments and work on the premise that all governments lie. That's how they operate. Instead, you have very shared worldviews and cooperation without any need for coercion and compulsion, although that did come, obviously. But in, in, protect, in promoting these values and these beliefs uh, and, and delegitimizing anyone who d disagrees as deplorables, the great unwashed, uh, whatever you want to call it, and I think without that, it would have been much, much more difficult uh, to succeed with the extent of coercion led by governments through the censorship industrial complex and so on. So that is my effort to solve this particular puzzle as to why people who should have been much more critical and professions that should have been much more critical in fact, went along with the compliance. It was seen as the right thing to do, as the moral thing to do, and therefore, if you resisted, you were a nutter, you were a fringe person, you were evil, you were immoral, uh, and it was right to silence you and to punish you. Well, and reality be damned. Absolutely. Right, and that's, that's very interesting, because this, of course, you're talking about this ascendant woke, I'll use that, there's different names, right? Uh, critical social justice ideology, woke ideology. Um, there's this idea that you know the reality is constructed through language. Absolutely, right, and it's so it's so central to the. And I think some of this minority that believes it actually believes this. Mm -hmm. Some of them, yeah. at least, and some are opportunistic, obviously. And, and they exploited again the basic 
human instinct to be decent, to be tolerant, to accept people for who they are. That at some change, at some stage and through some processes that the behavioral scientists will have to look at changed into demands for compulsion and coercion and, and, and stuff like that. And, and that's where the danger came in and that's I think also what happened uh, in, in this regard too. So this kind of, you know, transformation from something being a health question to being a moral question, mm -hmm. for example. I think that was very important. That, there was a, the first major research along those lines that came out was funnily enough from my old university in New Zealand, the University of Otago where they studied and they established or they found that the strongest motivation was they were seeing it not as a health issue but as a moral issue. You are a part of society, you are part of this community. It is your moral duty to help the community survive. And it got translated in short form into don't be a granny killer. But that idea that we must put on a mask because otherwise everyone else feels unsafe and that's not right. It's just a small price to pay. And we saw that argument repeatedly, that it's just a minor inconvenience and only for a short time. What's your problem? Don't be so selfish. So these elements, I think, were very important to that. And I actually say in the book that at some stage, in fact, the moralization was transformed into a deeper sacralization, which meant you couldn't even question it. It was sacrilege to question it. It, you, it was heresy to question it. And the new priesthood enforcing this heresy was the public health authorities. And it, it does have a kind of religious quality Absolutely. to it. And, and, and I suspect, although not being religious myself, I haven't delved deeply into it, but I suspect the decline of faith and practice, religious, religious practice, may be an important background factor also. Because it does seem to me that as human beings, we need that core fundamental belief and value system that constitutes a community of shared beliefs and values. And religion has been the essential underpinning of society and community to get to that stage. So if we start assaulting and dismantling religion, that need can only be satisfied by something equivalent. And I certainly you can make the case that something like the climate activism, in many respects, it seems to behave like a cult. And the same thing happened with this as well. It becomes a set of beliefs that are beyond question, self-evidently true. Mm. And if you question it, therefore, it's not because you're trying to find out genuinely, but it's because you're evil. You are uh, not worth listening to. In fact, we will silence you and, if necessary, imprison you. Mm -hmm. uh, that becomes there. And it's, it's hard to explain other than in terms of a religious fervor. So yes, I think that there is an argument along those lines. You know, you're just reminding me of something, and this was a only a headline I read. I didn't look into the I didn't look into the article, but you're reminding me. You know, I noticed I recently signed on to the Westminster Declaration, mm -hmm. sort of, you know, free speech as a as a virtue. Yeah. Let's say, okay. And I noticed Richard Dawkins, Professor Richard Dawkins, is also signatory. I never imagined I would be a co-signatory with him. I always imagined him a brilliant scientist, but I really did, what I never liked about him is a very kind of anti-religion posture, right? I think I think faith and religion is very important in people's lives. So, 
anyhow, but I, with the headline I saw was he was saying, I, I think it might have been by a Christian publication, mm -hmm. and they were saying, well, even Richard Dawkins you know, is not as negative to Christianity anymore because it may be, it could be replaced by something worse. I mean, that was the, that was, that was, that would be his framing, right? And I, and I, it, I didn't read the article, but it made me wonder, you know, if this, if, if, uh, you know, precisely these sorts of questions that well, you're just it's, describing, it's, it, right? It, it, you know, religion has performed incredibly positive roles in binding peoples together in regulating conduct along human dimensions through social mores, which have their origins in a lot of religious beliefs as well. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, some of our most destructive conflicts have been between different religions as well. So this duality is part of human reality mm -hmm. uh, in so many different dimensions. But I think in our focus on the destructive aspects, we have overlooked the unifying, positive, sustaining values of religion through communities. Uh, and it forms an important sort of one. Now, unlike Richard Dawkins, that, 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 again, I'm not, I mean, I might not be religious myself, but I have never had any difficulty accepting other people with strong religious beliefs and value systems and being allowed, if they want to, to practice that the way they want to, there should be. Uh, my, most of my, in fact, pretty much all the rest of my family is deeply religious. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would certainly never knowingly or deliberately do anything to offend the religious sensibilities of any community. That's fine. And I, I acknowledge the positive role. And an anecdotal observation, and that has been kind of verified by a number of people who have been kind of looking at this, is that people with the deep faith seem to be somehow more resilient to this, um, well, you know, facade of consensus and pressure to conform, which is interesting. I don't know if you've observed that. Uh, no, not. I think yeah. that's true. But yeah. in addition, people with deep religious convictions tend to project a greater element of calmness and serenity. Think about it. Mm -hmm. Think of the Dalai Lama mm -hmm. in terms of how he comes across things. And it is important, I, I, I think. And when we have times of trouble, we do look to authority figures. If we have a medical problem, we might look to the doctor and the family. Uh, one of the great losses is the loss of the family GP idea, and this all become commercialized even the medical profession but we do that and and in terms of troubled soul or conscience or things we do as an instinct want to be able to approach the priest or someone equivalent to wrestle through these difficult questions uh, all the way to the big questions of meaning of life and uh, death versus other aspects and if that is broken, what else can take its place? Mm. And how do you prevent your young people, your own children, or the young people in society generally, how do you prevent them from being seduced by the darker elements as substitutes for religion as a positive element? Well, and you know, argue many people have argued that, you know, including I'm thinking John McWhorter, he wrote a his whole book sort of explaining critical race theory as a religion, you know, I, mm. I believe. But 
I mean, wokeism seems to be that's one this substitute, you know, or one of these substitutes, exactly what you're talking about. It seems like that, but it, it, it's, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm too much of a different generation. Sure. And, I, and it, it's even though I've lived in the West now for the two thirds of my life, it's, it's still very hard for me to get op, uh, op, obsessed over essentially first world problems. You know, being confronted by the literal violence of words in a classroom Right. Is, is a bit of a luxury belief Correct. Uh, when I've studied professionally mass atrocities in so many countries and visited places Absolutely. which are symbols and abiding it. Now you're from Poland, I, I went to the place where Willy Brandt spontaneously went down on his knees to apologize on behalf of Germany for the Holocaust and what was done to the Polish Jews. Uh, and I, it, it's a very touching very simple but very, very touching memorial. And I happened to go shortly after that to the Nanjing Massacre Memorial. Uh, and I actually wrote an article for the Japan Times saying how much foreign policy and internal soul cleansing benefit would Japan get if a Japanese prime minister were to do something similar, go to Nanjing, the thing about the Willy Brandt gesture was the authenticity it communicated. You can see that in the images. You could pretty much see it on his face, the dawning realization that the enormity of what they had done. If a Japanese prime minister could do something similar, it would be important internally for the Japanese society. And it would be enormously beneficial in terms of making it possible to repair relations, not just with China, but also with South Korea. Uh, in terms of what they had done. So I think these are again important elements mm. that, that, that go back to the shared humanity, which is an, you know, obviously that's a very important underpinning principle for me, that I want to be able to make it possible to improve lives and enable the realization of the full potential of every human being. You should not be denied that opportunity because of your race, because of your gender, because of your nationality, because you are poor. And one of the great things we have done in Western society is the democratization of access mm. to the full potential of living as a human being. And, you know, another episode we could do together is how, you know, a whole lot of people seem to be hell-bent on stopping that. Yes. Now. But, <laughs> and, and of course, arguably even this whole you know, pandemic response was could be a, could be a part of that. Some people they, have argued. They right? take for granted something that is actually quite exceptional in human history, the present position they find themselves in. We have, as a society, never been wealthier, better educated, more prosperous, living longer, etc. And a lot of these benefits came through the scientific progress and the invention of different uh, aspects that allowed us, freed us from being tied to the land, which then freed us from servitude to the landlord and, and the feudal lord, uh, and so on. And education was a pathway to escape all, all sorts of problems. Uh, the bicycle and the car enabled women to be freed from servitude in the home. 
So there's been tremendous progress and we tend to overlook the progress made and obsess about we have such an evil past and we must keep apologizing for that for the, future, uh, for the present and therefore the only future we can look to is one of managed decline rather than continued expansion of uh, stable, prosperous societies as free human beings. And encouraging human flourishing. I love this. I love this 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 term. You know, there's I want to I want to we're going to have to finish fairly sure. soon, but I want to catch a couple of things here. Um, one and this kind of this theme has come up a few times. You you like to use a term I like to use, I noticed, which is science TM. Yeah. Um, and so what's the difference between science TM and science briefly? Science TM is that cult-like, semi-religious elevation of putting something on a pedestal and beyond question, turning it into the equivalent of an altar, if you like, uh, and, and you're not allowed to question it. And it has its own priesthood and its clerisy uh, and its heretics, uh, and heresy is punishable. Science, without the capital S and without TM, is what has made human progress possible. Obviously, again, with again that duality, it comes with some risks and some dangers. No better example than nuclear energy. Uh, if you're worried about intermittency in your energy security and long-term stability, uh, we have sufficient confidence in the safety features of nuclear reactors now that nuclear power is actually a very good solution long-term in terms of reliable, uh, assured energy. And it is used in nuclear medicine. I've had that used uh, in a life-saving situation in my own context. Many thousands, if not millions of people have had that as well. But obviously, both on the accidental side and on the weapon side, there are risks. So science is part of that. Science and technology can be harnessed to make lives better. They have given us a wonderful connectivity and communications. But there are dangers in that as well. But to elevate that beyond criticism destroys the essence of science. You must be able and free to question. Any scientific doctrine that cannot be questioned changes from science to dogma. So we're back to the religion again. And that's what happens with the science TM. So when Dr. Anthony Fauci says, by attacking me, they're attacking science, he's falling into that trap of elevating science with a lowercase s into science with a cap, title cap and TM. And that's where I think in his case, things started to, to go wrong as well. He, he did become too dogmatic, I think. You mentioned that as human beings, we look to authority, and one of those authorities, of course, is a doctor. Yeah. You know, your doctor is supposed to help you with your health and, you know, chart your path. And through this pandemic, many of us realized, can we really trust our doctors? Like, how are they making their decisions? Are they really upholding the Hippocratic Oath? Do they even understand what the informed consent would be? for example, for these genetic vaccines, you know? And so there's a whole lot of people out there that are just wondering to themselves, who do I trust for my health even? Well, of course, and there's, you know, if you, there's groups that have come out with ethical doctors, there's people relying on their own research, you know. By the way, I'm just remembering the demonization of do your own research, right? I did my own Absolutely, research. yes. But, but so what, 
in this sort of scenario, you said something very pointed, and I want to get you get you to bring that back here sure. about what when you're looking for a doctor, what you what you should what should you do? Yeah, it's uh, you know on the demonization part. If I'm healthy and I have committed no crime, why would you? Why would I agree to you putting me under house arrest? You being the government. So I started with that, and then it went on to well. The sanctity of the doctor-patient relationship, the sanctity of the Hippocratic oath, first do no harm, or make sure you don't do more harm than good by your intervention. I will stick to Australia because it's a country I know much better than the US, but we have amongst the best medical systems. We train our doctors to a very high standard, which is a world standard. I have my GP as a family GP. That doctor has the skills and the training and the qualifications that are amongst the best in the world. That doctor knows my history, my family's case history, knows me individually. I have a certain level of confidence and trust in my doctor. No other person can substitute for that anywhere near a level of confidence required. It is not the role of the government to insert itself between the doctor and the patient. But that is what we have seen through this. And we have also seen and we have now documented in several countries a fairly substantial decline of public confidence and trust in pretty much all the major institutions including the scientists, including doctors, including the media, including government. And part of that is because they stopped doctors from giving their best assessment and prescribing the best treatment for their patient. And part of that loss of trust then is, if I have a problem, I go to the doctor and if it's a major emergency like COVID where they are under instructions. I would want my first question to be, are you going to be able to give me your individual honest opinion based on your assessment of my symptoms, my case history, and your knowledge of the treatment options? Are you in a position where you can actually deal with me as an individual free of interference from your college? or the government. If not, I prefer to go to another doctor. Because they were not allowed to say what they wanted to say, and in some cases because some of the patients actually dobbed them in and said, you know, my doctor said masks don't work or vaccines don't work, and the doctor gets into trouble. Uh, so that contributed to the loss of trust and confidence in the system, and I think in these conditions, it is wise to ask the doctor up front, are you going to be able to give me an honest opinion or not? Uh, just as if I go to a doctor with a symptom and the doctor reacts with panic, oh my God, I've never seen something like this, I, you might be dead in the next hour, I think it's time to look for another doctor. <laughs> it's the job of the doctor to reassure you, convey the thing, it, it is serious, I don't want to understate it, but these are the risks, these are the options, 
this is what I would recommend. Uh, if you have doubts or further questions, it might be good if you consulted a second opinion or a third opinion. So that has been the norm. Second opinion has been good. And yet on some of the most important issues, suddenly under COVID, you're not even allowed to go and ask for a second opinion. And you're not allowed to express a second opinion. So those long term have been, I think, very, very damaging to public confidence and trust. And without that element of trust in the public institutions, again, you cannot sustain a viable society. So we need to start rebuilding. And that's why I like the theme of the conference this year, you know, rebuilding freedoms, but also rebuilding trust and confidence in institutions that we now believe serve our interests and not the interests of the professional class or the uh, people with the um, power and money. Well, you know, something that just strikes me thinking through our whole discussion right now, you know, for someone who has written the book, Our Enemy, the Government, you're a lot more pro-government than I expected. Back to the duality, Ian. A government is both the solution and the problem. Think of human rights. The biggest protector of human rights is the government machinery through the legislative framework, through setting up human rights bodies to, to monitor and check abuses uh, by where, wherever they might come from. But the, but the institution with the greatest potential to threaten human rights is the government. We've talked about China. Which is the biggest threat to human rights in China? It's the state, it's the government. But in terms of other human rights like uh, education and poverty and, and, and anti-discrimination, you still need the legislative framework. So it, 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 there are not that many absolutes in, in life. And it becomes important to recognize the boundaries and promote the good parts and, and mute the bad parts. Well, it, and it goes back to what everything I've been learning about the U.S. Constitution, which I've come to believe is, you know, was crafted in a very kind of ingenious way to kind of protect people from government. Mm -hmm. It was. And, and, <laughs> right. And, which and was necessary, which was clearly necessary. And the separation right. of powers, which has right. been circumvented right. by the different things of the state. Right. So it, it's things like law and order. You know, tax as the price for civilization, uh, infrastructure, health system. Uh, United States is a country that spends disproportionately more per capita on health, but actually has worse health outcomes than many other comparable countries in the Western world. So the, clearly there's some problem there. I think the, from what I know, the most efficient health outcomes are at some sort of a crossover between good basic public health supplemented by access uh, to private uh, health if need be. So we do need to, and that might differ from in one context to another, mm -hmm. but I would have been much happier if we had not wasted so much money in our responses to the COVID and contributed so enormously to the problems of inflation and cost of living that has happened, and instead use that money to build up the health systems rather than pay people to do nothing from work. Well, so last question, you know, very short thought. You know, you have a very unique vantage point, I think, from anyone I've spoken with. 
given the challenges and the resistance at all different levels to addressing this, the doubling down you know, that we're seeing on these policies, which you mentioned at, in 2019 would have been considered, at least in the literature, crazy, right? What is the one step towards some sort of reform or renewal? <laughs> I'm not sure there is a short answer to that. Uh, but let me go back to, I, I mentioned my professional interest in mass atrocities. In some ways, you can think of what happened as an example of mass atrocity in terms of taking away people's choices and freedoms and forcing them into things and, and uh, throwing them out of the jobs if they refused uh, to comply and so on and so forth. And you have a breakdown into victims and perpetrators in atrocities. And you need to protect the victims, but you also need to apprehend and punish the perpetrators. And that is important for a number of reasons. Firstly, that sense of justice is a very powerful instinct in human beings. And again, you cannot have any functioning society that is viable if you don't have mechanisms and procedures for identifying people who commit crimes and punishing them appropriately. So that is important to identify people who did things that amount that in some cases satisfy the threshold of criminality in behavior uh, and then punish them because otherwise justice is not appeased. Second, it is important in order to bring emotional closure, if not to victims who may be dead, then to their families and loved ones. That closure cannot come until such time as people have admitted to having been wrong, committed acts that they shouldn't have, committed acts that approach the threshold of criminality, and then you can have that closure. That can take different forms. In, and again, in atrocities, we have different forms of justice, mm -hmm. restorative justice, Absolutely. transitional justice, and we've seen different examples of that. So that's the second, punishment, then emotional closure. But the third, which I think is the most important to my mind, that is the most effective way to avoid and prevent a repetition. If they get away with it and nothing is done and we say, let's move on, it's in the past, they had the best of intentions, they were acting under conditions of imperfect information, it's over, let's move on. The danger in that is there will be no real bar to them repeating it next time. It's only if you really punish them and the you know, in, in atrocities, again, we have this notion of command responsibility. You don't go after the foot soldiers, but you do charge the general or the dictator with atrocity crime, with crime against humanity, with ethnic cleansing or whatever, and put them in jail. And that sends a message. So in a sense, it's, it's, it's an application of the old Sun Tzu principle, but in a more positive way. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, his argument of kill one, terrify a thousand. Yeah. Apprehend and jail one, and you terrify a thousand wannabe dictators in the future. I'd better not do that because otherwise I will risk imprisonment. So for these three reasons, I think simply saying, it's in the past, let's move on. I don't think it's possible to move on with some confidence 
without an admission of guilt, identification of the guilty, and appropriate punishment of the guilty uh, at the top levels, not necessarily at the, at the foot soldier level. Very powerful words also feels like a tall order. <laughs> but Ramesh Thakur, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. It's been wonderful having this conversation and as always, the questions help to, me to clarify my own thoughts and thinking on issues as well. So thank you very much. Oh, my sincere pleasure. Thank you all for joining Dr. Ramesh Thakur and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelek.